Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. We're joined in the podcast by Nick Coleman, who's written a fantastic new book called The Train in the Night, A Story of Music and Loss. And before he explains how he got to write that book, Nick, it's traditional on the podcast Mm. to start by people telling us what music was in their house when they were growing up. (laughs) Well, there was an awful lot of music in, in our house when I was growing up, but very little of it was pop music. Um, I essentially contaminated the household um, from about 1973, the year in which I was 13, and got the bug. Prior to that, it was a house full of uh, recorded music, but more often played music. My dad was a very musicianly man. He wasn't fantastically talented, but he had a great, great passion for early music and church music. Is vicar? No, he wasn't a vicar. He, he he became a publisher of the Bible, but he was not a vicar. Um, although he was a churchgoer, and I I indeed was a church chorister. Um, but yeah, the house was full of, of of all of that stuff, including crumb horns and vials and reproduction early instruments. He had some thing called a German guitar, which was untunable, but was said resembled a lute. So there was all of that. Interestingly, he didn't listen to his modest collection of records all that much, which, which again was all church music and German stuff, actually. Huge amount of German stuff, a lot of Wagner and Bach. And that's what I grew up with. But they did, at an early age, buy me a Beatles record. Um, it was the EP um, of, oh, Lord, I can't remember what it, was, what it was. Whatever it was, it established my totally unreasonable prejudice against the Beatles, which I, which I, 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 I suffer from to this, to this day. Yes, we'll talk about despite that. Despite knowing better. We'll talk about <laughs> that later on. Now, you, you uh, eventually, as a grown-up, you, you yeah. came to earn your living as somebody writing about music mm. for, for quite a long time. For what, for what publications? Um, well, I, I started out, I suppose, as, as a very minor stringer in, in, in the mid-'80s at NME um, at a time of great... <laughs> 
convulsion, interesting times, um, and then found myself at Time Out. I was the music editor at Time Out for seven years until about 1993, which was the point in my early 30s at which I felt that I was no longer fit for for use as a, as a full-time music journalist. And I carried on doing it. I, I, I went into newspapers and, and was at The Independent for 12 years, where I continued to write about music, but not as a as such as a music journalist documenting the daily vicissitudes of the music world, partly because I felt too old, partly because I, didn't, I wasn't so into what was happening, um, and partly because I wanted to do other things as well. I actually, what I have a thing about is music that I like. I, I really only like music that I like. I don't particularly engage with music that I don't like, and I think music journalists have to do both. They certainly do. Yeah. So writing about music <laughs> out of duty is the most awful thing in the Indeed. world. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, you had a health crisis, yeah. which eventually precipitated this book. Tell us about that. Uh, well, I, I, four years ago, I got up in the morning, feeling not terribly well, I have to say, went and made a couple of cups of tea for me and the missus, took them back to her, and one ear went like that. I was left with no hearing at all. I immediately started having balance function problems, monstrous tinnitus, uh, hyperacusia, which is the condition that arises when you can't bear even the tiniest sound, um, and essentially went to bed for three months. Um, it was exceedingly young, but I still have only one ear and a lot of tinnitus around the clock, but uh, the, the brain is a, is a remarkable thing, and it will enable you to adapt, um, which is a process perhaps we can talk about in due course. But yes, I lost my hearing big time. So you knew it wasn't, you know, gone swimming and the wax moved in your ear no. and all that kind of stuff that people have from time to time. I kind of had a, had a feeling at the time that it wasn't just that. I mean, it was partly the extraordinary white noise that, that, that I got instead of hearing. And the other auditory cortex for the other ear was utterly confused by this, which meant that one of the knock-on effects, the side effects, was that music for quite a long time didn't make any sense at all. In other words, I lost its, my ability to read its syntax and grammar. I, 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 one of the first things I did, um, which was perhaps rather foolhardy, after three or four months of being in bed, I thought, bugger this for a game of soldiers, I'm going to go and get some music. And it just happened to be about the time uh, that um, they were reissuing the, the remastered version of The Song Remains the Same, which I remembered the Led fondly, Zeppelin the Led Zeppelin thing. Concert film. Yes, yeah. it's, and it's also a sort of kind of rather silly, giant uh, home movie. Um, but I have very fond feelings from seeing it when I was about 16. And, and there was a preview of it at a, at a, a, a dodgy theatre in, in Piccadilly, and I, I went along to that thinking, well, there's a visual component to this, and I'd already found out that visual component helped, with my, helped my brain organise what it was hearing. And it was an appalling experience, not simply because... <laughs> For, for people who don't like Led Zeppelin, and I have to say I do very much, um, it wasn't simply because of... If I can describe it, uh, Robert Plant was perfect in his fidelity, his valency, as the technical term is. Um, but Jimmy Page was a, a total storm of detuned noise, um, like an tr underground train going into a station. Anyone who lives in London will know what I mean by that. No tuning. Couldn't hear the bass line at all. And for some extraordinary reason, Bonham's drums were completely out of time. It sounded it was it was the the classic man building a shed, 
Um, and people, who, again, who don't like John Bonham's drumming can say, well, he was always sounded like a man building. He said, well, I beg to differ. Absolutely. I think he's the greatest yeah, rock and roll drummer ever lived. Um, however, that's a, that's a kind of picture of what I'm talking about. And that was to do with my brain. We don't hear only with our ears. We hear with our brains. And our brains contr- uh, control and interpret and... and, and in, in effect, solicit the sound that comes through our ears. The, sound, the ear is the medium. Right, so the, the, the picture didn't make sense. So some bits of Led Zeppelin sounded fine, yep. as they should do, yep. and other bits just, just didn't mesh with it at all. Absolutely not, and weren't even musical. Right. It was extraordinary. Right. And very, very, very frightening for a man whose lifelong passion has been music. Yeah, yeah. So you, you talk about... You know the way you hear music now is being mm. very, very kind of flat, like mm. a like a like a technical drawing that's, for a right. for a construction. Tell us a bit about that. Well, I, I, I've I've always heard. I, I don't know how many people experience music like this, but I've always heard music three-dimensionally, um, and I've ex- extended that to a, a kind of metaphor for architecture. The music in my mind was always architectural. It had walls and ceilings and floors and architraves and basements, a kind of vessel in which one could, to my mind anyway, um, enclose and queue up and explore emotion. That's how I interpreted it. I never talked about it much because it always sounded vaguely pretentious to my ears. Um, But when I lost one ear, I lost the ability to hear music three-dimensionally, which is, in fact, what happens. if If you listen with only one ear, you not only lose a sense of direction, so I have no directional hearing at all, uh, I have no idea where sound comes from. But also you lose the sense of dimensionality, if I can use such an Americanism. Um, much as if you lose an eye, you can't perceive distance. Similarly, if you lose an ear, you can't perceive sound dimensionally and it has no depth of field. Um, and, and, and what I have and had in a much more acute way when it first happened is this sense that music is a completely flat experience, like a technical drawing, an architectural drawing of the building that I used to hear. Now, I can appreciate where the depth is meant to be because it's a good technical drawing now, but, but I can't it. experience it, yeah. Exactly. So uh, what's the experience of listening to music like? Frustrating? <laughs> well, I've, I've spent four years adapting, and the brain is a remarkable or- organ. It was... It was as you can imagine, phenomenally upsetting to begin with, um, in, in, in a very deep, <laughs> deep way that went right to the core of who the hell I think I am. Because like most chaps of my generation, or many chaps of my generation, music had been one of the, th- the factors that most shaped the person that I became as a grown-up. Um, um, but yes, it was massively upsetting, so much so that I, I think I went a little mad for a while and, and rather disassociated from my sense of self, but we won't go into that now. Um, and gradually, as, as I was told I would, uh, or as I was told would happen by a good consultant when I finally got to see one after six months, um, the brain does its remarkable thing and it recruits other areas um, other than the, the normal places, the auditory cortices, um, recruits those other areas to help reform the listening experience. So what I have now is a, is a relatively flat um, experience that is monophonic. 
I can't take any volume at all because the tinnitus then goes right up and overwhelms whatever it is I'm listening to. So I can only listen to music quite quietly. So you listen but, to country music and things like that? Oh, I do listen to yeah. a lot of country. George Jones is virtually my favourite singer. He's <laughs> on the right, on the right oh, frequency for Perfect. I have to be very careful because otherwise I'll start wearing cowboy hats. But um, yes, no, it, it, it is an issue what I listen to. But I can actually now listen to Led Zeppelin again, which is, of course, a great joy. Um, but yeah, my, my, my tastes have, have, have been heightened rather than changed. The, the, I still like the things that I always liked, um, but I like them in a different way. And in some ways, I like, when, like them with even more passion than I did before because I've been able to recover so much. Which you explore in the book. But what, mm. what the, you talk in the book about when this first starts to happen, you go back to your, your home and mm. there's just these walls of CDs and you think, yeah. these are no use to me anymore. It was a bad moment, David. <laughs> it was a kind of visual metaphor for death, I suppose. I mean, it was really terrible. And I, I actually resolved that even if I couldn't look at the stuff, um, I was not going to get rid of it until I, I, I knew what the final outcome of the story was going to be. And I was bloody-mindedly determined that I was going to get something back. So did you start to think, when you looked at those CDs and thought, mm. I can't hear them in the, in the mm. old way anymore, did you start to think... But I've got immense memories yeah. of all those things. And did you start to play those tunes in your head? Not at that stage. It wasn't... I, I, I managed by jerking a few journalistic strings. I was doing a piece for The Guardian um, to, to, to have a, a brief, unofficial consultation with Oliver Sacks, of the man, the man who wrote The Wife, who, Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, and had also just published a very good book about the neurology of music called Musicophilia. And he was in London um, talking on the radio about that. And I managed to nobble him in his hotel for half an hour or so. And although it wasn't a proper con- consultation and didn't really go into any great depth, he said to me, look, you have got this brain full of then 35, 40 years' worth of music listening, which is a a fantastic resource. And there is this rather interesting neurological fact, which is that in electroencephalographic terms, in other words, that thing where you have electrodes put on your head and they take a reading of how your brain lights up, listened to music lights up in the brain in in precisely the same way as remembered music. In other words, if if you play George Jones... Um, and and you're all hooked up to an electroencephalograph, the picture you get will be exactly the same as the one you get if you remember George Jones, yeah. which is extraordinary. The upshot of that being, the inference from that being, that um, since the brain is a plastic organ, in other words, it will change itself um, to, to help you in as far as it can do, um, what I should do is start remembering like crazy to help my brain get excited about this thing um, and start cutting new pathways. I'd love to use the technical terminology, but I can't. Cutting new paths to enable it to recruit other brain areas. And interestingly enough, I've since been had an MRI scan and my brain really does light up in a very unusual way now using all kinds of bits of the brain that most people don't use to listen to music. Which proves that Dr Sachs was right. Um, and, but yes, I did, to answer your question, I did start to 
to very, very systematically think hard, remembering my favourite bits of music. Um, so so this, this leads us to the book, mm. which is part of your therapy process, isn't yeah, it, really? The, you, you went back and thought, what are my relationships with music? Mm. How have they been since I was a small boy, particularly mm. through the teenage years, which yep. I do think you, you write about remarkably well. And oh, thank you. Everybody likes to think that they can write about the teenage years really <laughs> well, but you do it exceptionally well. Oh, and uh, <clears throat> I wanted to, to – uh, one of the things you, you talk about is uh, in the early days, listening to Radio 2 mm. – um, I can't remember the circumstances. N- hoping that something you mm. wanted to hear mm. might come along. Yes, and that's an experience. It seems to me that's gone nowadays, yeah. hasn't it? Because you know, we can all ha- we can all listen to whatever we want to any time at any time, at, free at, of at charge. Yeah. Whereas that, that kind of the emotional pull yeah. of you know not being able to dial something up was yeah. hugely important. Was it? Tell us about that. Oh, it's, uh, it, was, it was an extraordinary thing. I mean, it, it, I think the phrase I use in in in, in the the book is the the. The seed of discernment was sown deep because I listened to Radio 2 um, incessantly during the early 70s because I couldn't get Radio 1 where I lived. It was just a sort of jungle of static. And this um, is only out in Cambridge. And this is only Cambridge, <laughs> just in, in a nook behind the Gog Magog Hills. But for some reason, you couldn't get Radio 1 and you couldn't get Radio 3 either, which really pissed me down right. off as well. Right. Um, you could get them, but it was horrible. It was not unlike the, mu- the noise that I have in my head now, a sort of jungle of static and whizzy sounds. It was awful. So I listened to Radio 2 a lot. And, and from, from about the age of 11, I was engaged in this process of sorting out what was good and what was bad. In other words, what do I like and what do I not like? And Radio 2 in those days had a policy of, of essentially playing um, the latest easy listening stuff plus golden oldies. And it became very clear quickly to me um, as an 11, 12-year-old that I liked a certain kind of golden oldie, in other words, old records by the Stones, the Kinks, Elvis, stuff like that, rather more than the Edwin Collins singers. Sorry, Edwin. Um, Edwin Hawkins. Edwin. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. The Edwin Hawkins singers. Um, um, And so I became terribly involved in this this solitary process, a fairly onanistic process, I suppose you have to say, of deciding rather priggishly what was good and what was bad. Um, um, And so by the time I was out in the world... um, meeting interesting new people on the bus into town to go to school who were also into rock and roll. Um, I was, I'd already started this slightly priggish business of deciding what was good and what was bad. Yes. You have been listening to the free feed of the Word podcast. The full album-length version is only available to subscribers to the magazine. To sign up and to hear the rest of this podcast, go to www.wordpodcast.co.uk 